Uh, good morning, and if I haven't already welcomed you to the Redeemer, welcome you to the Redeemer uh, yet again. Um, I'm one of the pastors here, if you're new uh, with us, uh, so obviously I'm not Jim, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night, so maybe I can impersonate him a little bit. Uh, but he's away visiting family for the holidays, uh, so y- you get me today. And if you would, just keep your finger there in Matthew 2.13-23. through 23. That's the text we're going to be working through. But before we jump in, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get to work. <clears throat> Almighty God, you have poured upon us the new light of your incarnate word. Grant that this light, kindled in our hearts, may shine forth in our lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, so how many of you like to go to the movies? You can raise your hand. You don't have to. Yes, movies are fun to go to, right? So before we get started, I wanted to tell you, one of the things that we like to do in the Romine house is that we like to go to the movies. That's kind of rare because it's expensive for a family of five to go to the movies now, as you could imagine. There's new reclining seats and everything. The, the ticket prices have shot up through the roof. And not to mention concession stands. That's why movie gift certificates are fantastic. Now, I, I enjoy the experience of going to the movies. I enjoy waiting in line for popcorn, you know, delicious, crunchy, salty, buttery popcorn, and, and an ice cold Coke to wash it down. I even used to like waiting in line, surprisingly. Who likes to wait in line to get tickets, right? I, now, you get tickets simply by pushing your app, download, or, you know, buying your tickets through there. You authenticate with your face, and boom. You've paid for your tickets. You don't have to wait in line. You just go get your popcorn and everything. So the process has now become easier. Right? Rather than waiting in line and being turned away because it's been sold out, we, we can just buy our tickets and our seats right there. One of the other things that I really enjoy about movies and the experience of going to movies is watching the trailers, seeing these upcoming movies that are about to hit the, hit the box office. Something that I, I really enjoy. We were just at the movies, in fact, a couple weeks ago, and one of the things that uh, we saw were like all these different movies. I think there's a new Scooby-Doo movie coming out, and I was absolutely giddy. It's called Scoob. Yes, I'm a child at heart, in case you guys didn't know. But, but sometimes when you see these trailers, they're really good, right? They're, they give you these little snippets of what's going to happen in this movie, and you're like, yes, it looks awesome. Look, how, look at the body count. If you watch The Expendables, there's probably a body count, right? And that's in the trailer, right? And sometimes the movies, they just end up being duds. The trailers are awesome. The movies are duds. You get two and a half minutes of a sneak peek into a movie, and sometimes they're really good, right? What does that have to do with our passage this morning, you may be wondering? Why are you talking about movie trailers? Well, we're in a part of Scripture this morning where we see snippets or trailers, if you will, from the Old Testament showing us how Christ fulfilled Old Testament um, Old Testament prophecies. Right? We see them in the New Testament. If you look at the entirety of Matthew, of his gospel, the whole goal and his whole intention within this book, within his letter, within his book, was to point the Jewish people to know who the Messiah was, right? He took these prophecies, he showed how Christ was the one who fulfilled these prophecies. That was his whole audience, the Jewish people. He bridges the Old Testament and the New Testament by showing how Christ fulfilled these prophecies. Just look how Matthew begins his, his, his very, his, the very first chapter. Right? He begins to teach the Jewish people about who the Messiah truly is and how Jesus is the promised Messiah. That's why he starts out with a genealogy. This would be important to the Jewish people to see. You see that Christ came through the lineage of David. He was a son of David who was a son of Abraham. And the promise to David was that God would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Number one, that would be important for the Jewish people to see how Christ fulfilled 
that promise to the covenant, uh, Davidic covenant. This is why we see this genealogy in the beginning of Matthew. It's not to bore us with facts, but the fact is to point us to Jesus as the Messiah that God had promised. <clears throat> Moving forward in the first chapter, we see the birth of Jesus. We see how that took place. And, and Jim worked through that last Sunday if you were with us. We saw how Christ fulfilled another Old Testament prophecy that he was, uh, that he would be born of a virgin. Now he humbled himself to come in such a poor and vulnerable state. He did not come as a conquering king, swinging his sword at his enemies, but as a helpless infant, simply identifying with the needs of his creation. And we get into chapter 2, where we see the same thing again. In, in verse 5, it says, For it is written by the prophet, You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So again, another fulfilled prophecy in Christ. So Matthew's pointing out how Jesus is the one who fulfills these prophecies yet again. So let's look at verse 13 and see how Jesus is called out of Egypt. How that parallels the Exodus and how Jesus inaugurates a new Exodus. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet of Egypt, I've called my son. So to set the stage here real quick, the Magi had come, these wise men had come, they were bringing gifts and worshiping this newborn king. And Herod had asked them where this king was so he could he could go and worship him. At least that's what he said, right? Where's this king so I can worship? Where's this child? See, Herod wanted to know where he was, but it wasn't so that he could go worship this child, right? It wasn't so he could go worship Jesus, it was... Because he wanted to destroy the child. He wanted to kill him. See, the enemy had a plan to destroy God's chosen from the very beginning. Just look at Genesis chapter 3 where we see uh, there was a plan to uh, destroy God's creation with the fall of Adam and Eve. Thus putting all of creation under these fallen circumstances. Sin entered the world and creation fell. Humanity fell. And now we are born into this, this sin pattern. Our lives are just sinful uh, shells of what they should have been. And we see in the Exodus, the enemy wanted to destroy God's chosen people because he knew this is how the gospel would come forth into the world. He put God's people were into in slavery in Egypt. Pharaoh wouldn't let his people go. Pharaoh would not let God's people go. The, the, the Savior would come forth into the world through the nation of Israel, and the enemy wanted nothing more than to stop that at all costs, even if it meant destroying the nation of Israel. So we see the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Steal and destroy. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. So this is what we see happening in Christ's life. We see that Christ's life is paralleling the children of Israel. And in some sense, our lives parallel that. So all this happens and Joseph is warned, warned in a dream and it, that it's time for them to leave. Right? So, so they, they need to get out of there. They need to get to Egypt. Egypt is only about 70 to 90 miles away from Bethlehem at this time. So it doesn't seem like a relatively long trip. But it's a long trip with an infant. And it's a long trip on camelback. Just think two, let's see, two, is it what, two and a half hours past Charleston? That's about 90 miles, maybe, something like that. My times could be off. I don't know. I drive really fast. So you can't do that on a camelback. It takes them like two and a half days. So you can imagine how slow that is, right? 
But just just think about that. Think about traveling with children and infants. Tough that is. <laughs> but see, this was all to protect the Messiah, to protect Jesus, to protect the plan that God was going to bring forth. Because Jesus would have been safe here. He would have been safe in Egypt because there it was outside of Herod's, Herod's jurisdiction. Herod had no rule there. Plus, there was a lot of ex, expats that did live in that time, in that region at that time in Egypt. So it wouldn't have been hard for Joseph to find a job or to find maybe some people that he uh, was was familiar with or some family that was there. But I also believe this is to allude to something, uh, something else, something greater. Egypt is always representative of bondage to sin. Jesus was going into the land of bondage. It's like when we were born into sin. We were brought into this land of bondage just like when the Israelites went to Egypt and were uh, coming out of this exodus. They, they were in the land of bondage. They were slaves, slaves to unrighteousness, just as we are today. He pulls this quote from Hosea, right? Hosea 11.1. 1. If you're familiar with that, Hosea is talking about the nation of Israel and they're going forth into sin and they're coming back and they're going forth and coming back. They were very wishy-washy and went uh, back and forth with, with their sin. But Hosea 11 is where this verse comes from that we see in verse 15 here at the end. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burnt, burning offerings to idols. So the nation of Israel is called out of bondage. They get rescued. Yet they keep returning back to these pagan religions, these false gods, worshiping these false gods and sacrificing to these false gods. It's like when we get rescued and redeemed and yet we keep fighting with sin and returning back to sin and and falling back into sin as a dog would return to its vomit the proverb says god grants us repentance and yet we come back to our sin god is calling you and me and all of us out of egypt out of egypt i have called my son we are now sons and daughters of the most high because of what christ has done He has called us out of that bondage. He has called us out of the sin to live a life that is pleasing to Him now. To live a life telling others about uh, about Jesus and about what He has done to rescue you. The Lord is calling us out. He's calling you out of bondage. Matthew's quote in Hosea 11.1 sets the stage for the second quote from an Old Testament prophet. Let's look here at uh, verses 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So this, this quote comes after Herod kills all the infant boys in Bethlehem. It's taken from Jeremiah 31.15. So the prophet is talking about the time when the people of God were taken into exile yet again. Babylonians came and attacked Jerusalem, demolishing people's homes and destroying the entire city. And then they took all the people to Ramah, a place that was just north of Bethlehem, or Jerusalem, excuse me. And at Ramah, the people were put into caravans and scattered apart from one another. This was a scene of unimaginable anguish, as you could imagine. Right? Consider your reaction if you were taken uh, to a place where you had been separated from your family and your friends, the prospect that you might not ever see them again. Imagine the weeping and the crying that would take place in a scene 
that his families uh, were torn apart. This is the kind of scene that Matthew refers to when he describes the weeping and crying over children who had died in Bethlehem. But there's a deeper significance here also. Jeremiah says right after in verse 16 through 17. He says, Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Jeremiah tells the people that God has not forgotten them and that he will initiate a new relationship, a new covenant with them. God was going to unite his people together under that covenant. And if you continue on in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, you get to read about that new covenant. I encourage you to read, read through that chapter. So when he quotes from Jeremiah, it's like he's saying that yes, the, the pain is real. But there's hope for your future. And that hope is here. Jesus has come. The Messiah is here. He ends our mournful exile and he gives us hope in the midst of our hurt and our pain. Now let's turn back and, and, and look here again at, at Matthew. And we see Jesus, Mary, and Joseph are returning back to Israel. But they've returned out of Egypt, out of the land of bondage, which again is a parallel. He comes out of the land of bondage and he's coming into this promised land, right? He's coming back to, back to Nazareth, actually, where they, they, they go to instead of Bethlehem. So let's look at, uh, let's look at the following verses, how Christ's life parallels that of the Israelites when coming out of the land of, of bondage and into the land of promise. <clears throat> but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So Herod's son, Archelaus, if that's how you pronounce it, I'm going to say it real fast with confidence and you guys think I know what I'm talking about. He's just as violent and heinous as his dad. The apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, right? He might even be more so than Herod. But whatever it was, it sparked fear in Joseph's heart. He was afraid to go back. He didn't want to go back to where, where they were called to go back to. He was warned in a dream yet again. Now, there is some confusion about this text, it seems. Now, there's, there's nowhere in the Old Testament uh, that it mentions Nazareth or that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Matthew's not quoting any specific Old Testament passage, but he's referring to a general time, or general theme, rather, in the Old Testament written by the Old Testament prophets. Matthew's saying that the Old Testament prophets foretold that the Messiah would be despised, comparable to the way in which the town of Nazareth was despised in the time of Jesus. I don't know of any town that's despised or looked down on um, in our day, but uh, John 1, 4, 6 when they were talking about Jesus, said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Parkersburg? Can anything good come out of South Parkersburg? And that's not a, that's not a dig on people that are in Southside. But typically, in our area, where we're from, we kind of look down our noses at people that are from the other side of the river or look down on the other side of the river. So that's, that's, that's kind of, if we want to localize those terms and localize what this would look like, then yes, we could use that as an example. And that might help you understand. But... I think there's an interesting wordplay that we look at here with Nazareth. In Isaiah 11.1, 1, we see another prophecy about the Messiah. Let me turn there real quick. I didn't even mark it. I should have. Isaiah 11.1. 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, 
and a branch from his roots shall bear for, bear fruit. The Hebrew word netzer, which is seen in this text, means branch or root. And Nazareth comes from this root word. So that might be an interesting word play. Right? Maybe it's speculation. Quite possibly, Matthew knew exactly what he was talking about when he used this, this term, when he used Nazareth. Maybe he was looking back at Isaiah 11.1 1 and thinking, those two words, they, they come together. And this points us to the verse also in Isaiah 53 that says that Jesus was despised and rejected by men. So that whole thought is there in, in that passage, that Jesus would be despised, much like, much like Nazareth. But now that we're, we're here, we're at this, this ending part of, uh, of, this, of this passage here in Matthew, and what does it all mean? What do these fulfilled prophecies mean? What do these prophecies mean for us today? Not just for the Israelites that were you know, 2,000 years ago. So we know that Matthew used these prophecies in his gospel, throughout his gospel, to point the Jewish people to the Messiah, to point them to who the Messiah was. And that was Jesus, to show that he fulfilled them. Many people today, those Jewish people today who practice Judaism, they are still awaiting this Messiah. They're still looking for Him to come. They don't believe that Christ is the Messiah, that He fulfilled all of these prophecies. They're still waiting on Him, waiting for them to come. They have this idea still in their minds that, that the Messiah will come as this great King who will rule and reign in great power. And they will reign with this Messiah forever and always. Of course, the Messiah, He will reign forever and always. But He did not come the way that they expected Him. He came as an infant, the baby, born of a virgin to human parents, and lived a meager life, learning the trade of carpentry, hanging out with fishermen. What a life, right? He spent time with sinners and prostitutes, and people called Him a drunkard. I don't know, this is exactly the person I'd want to hang out with, right? He was called these things because of who He hung out with. So again, let me ask you a question. What do these mean? What do these prophecies mean to us? Matthew is trying to point to the Jewish, the Jewish people to Jesus as the Messiah. What does that mean for us? We're in this season of Advent, the season of Christmas tide, where we have celebrated the coming of Christ. In the season of Advent, we light four candles. We only have one lit today. But these four candles represent hope and promise and joy and peace. I think it's important that during this time that we think about that. We think about hope and promise and joy and peace. We think about these prophecies that were fulfilled, right? These prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled by Christ and how they point us to our joy, our hope, and our peace. And that promise that He has and that He will come again. Every time you read and see in the Gospels the fulfillment of prophecy, you should have hope sparked in your heart. If you're a follower of Christ, it should strengthen your faith. It should strengthen your hope and your joy and your peace when you read these words. I know just in, in studying it and, and, and looking at some of these parallels, it, it's as if it rekindled faith. It relit a fire within my heart during the season of Advent and at other times. We must see that Christ has come to lead us out of Egypt. He's coming again to rescue us from the Egypt that we live in. The Lord is calling His people out of Egypt. Is He calling you? This morning, if you are in this room and you feel that call, you feel the call of the Gospel, you feel the Holy Spirit say, come and Follow me. Pray that you would heed that call. That you would heed what is being said to you and that you would come and follow Jesus. See, Jesus has come to inaugurate a new exodus, to make our deliverance from sin possible. He's come to end our mournful exile, to bring us hope in the midst of hurt and life in the midst of death as a new king with a new covenant that unites us to God. And none of this is based on our work for him 
but on His work for us. He has come to love us in all of our sinful rebellion. So in our minds and in our hearts, we have all rejected Him. It's by His grace and for His glory that He has redeemed us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Lord, I thank You uh, for this time we could gather or to worship You and to celebrate You and to celebrate the reason that You came. We thank You that You have redeemed us, God. Lord, we pray also for those that our loved ones, Lord, that You would give us the courage, Lord, to lead them out of bondage, to show them Christ, who's the light of the world. I pray as this word went forth, Lord, that hearts were open and that the Holy Spirit would do work and that you would, uh, Your word would not return void. It's in Your name we pray. Amen.